So I wanted to talk tonight a bit about the heart. And I thought I'd start with a poem that, another one of these poems that came to me today. So specifically for this retreat, I think. It's another John O'Donohoe poem. He says, when the rhythm of the heart becomes hectic, time takes on the strain until it breaks. Then all the unattended stress falls in on the mind like an endless increasing weight. The light in the mind becomes dim. You have been forced to enter enter empty time. The desire that drove you has relinquished. There is nothing to do now but rest and patiently learn to receive the self you have forsaken for the race of days. At first, your thinking will darken and sadness take over like the listless weather. The flow of unwept tears will frighten you. You have traveled too fast over false ground. Now your soul has come to take you back. Take refuge in your senses. Open up to all the small miracles you rushed through. Become inclined to watch the way of rain when it falls slow and free. Imitate the habit of twilight, taking time to open the well of color that fostered the brightness of day. Draw alongside the silence of stone until its calmness can claim you. Be excessively gentle with yourself. Stay clear of those vexed in spirit. Learn to linger around someone of ease who feels they have all the time in the world. Gradually, you will return to yourself, having learned a new respect for your heart and the joy that dwells far within slow time. So, there's a little bit of a prologue to tonight's talk. Many years ago, in the late 90s, as he worked his way through his midlife issues, my husband decided to go to Burning Man, which most of you know. Anybody here who doesn't know what Burning Man is? big arts festival party. Pink hair. What? Pink hair. Pink hair. No, not yet. <laughs> I was utterly horrified. <laughs> utterly horrified. And I was utterly judgmental. And I was certain I was going to lose him to some naked woman <laughs> whose skin and hair were probably dyed blue. So, here at the retreat, just as there, we are often treated to a spectacular display of the nature of the mind, which, of course, is partly what that was. And last night, we talked some about how the mind can get so lost in the hindrances and aversion and desire and restlessness and sloth and torpor and doubt 
and it gets utterly clouded by these things. You know, the image of of aversion sort of dyeing the clear pool of the mind with color and and I'm I'm sorry, desire dyeing it with color and aversion it's filled with bubbles and and like a hot pool and sloth and torpor it gets all slimy and filled with algae and kind of yucky and with restlessness it's like the wind is blowing over it and you can't see below the surface. And with doubt it gets kind of dried up and muddy. And so I love those images because they're so graphic and they're perfect for what happens in the mind when we are possessed with those things. And probably you've all known, I'll bet probably everyone by now has known every one of those hindrances in the course of this retreat, or at least most of them. Of course, sometimes you get all of them at once, bubbles and dye and algae and mud and the wind all at once. It's pretty dreadful. But then, of course, there's also times when the mind is really clear. It's still and quiet and, and we see right you know, into whatever it is that we're giving our attention to in that moment. One of the things I've noticed as we talk about our experience, I've noticed it here in the interviews and I've noticed it at many retreats, is that there's a very consistent theme that goes through. And that is that we are all possessed of a judging mind. Every one of us. And this is often one of the first things that we see in a retreat. And you know how it is. You're worried about your gear and your clothing. You know, did you bring the right clothes for the retreat? We talked about that a little early on. You're sitting, you know, the person next to you, they can sit, you know, but you, you know, you're not straight or you're wiggly or whatever. Or you worry about what you said in the group, you know, what did everybody think and what did the teacher think? And then, of course, if you're not busy judging yourself, you know what happens, right? You're judging them, right? Their gear, you know, how could she wear such a thing to a retreat? Or, you know, what someone said in the group this morning, or, you know, where they put their dishes, or how much food they took, or how many brownies they took tonight. It's always interesting when they have brownies and they say moderation. I never know what moderation means with brownies. You know, does it mean one, or does it mean don't take more than four? <laughs> really. But the judging mind really gets going. And then, not so long ago, I came to a retreat once, and they had Kleenex that had mottos on it. And the motto said, or the name of the Kleenex, I don't know what it was, but it said, surpass. And I thought, surpass? I don't, you know, I don't need that here at this retreat. Surpass what? And, and then, of course, because it's a purification practice, stuff is coming up, right? And so it, sometimes it's the things from the past, you know? And there's a poet, uh, Virginia Adair, who's written a wonderful poem about Zazen. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But she talks about um, how she came into this retreat carrying this trunk, full of stuff. And she said it was crammed with humiliations bottled like urine samples, (laughs) nail kegs of anger, 
carbons of abusive letters. This was back when they had carbons. Chemistry quizzes with Fs. And even the horse I never had. And the two casseroles I made that were not eaten at the potluck supper. (laughs) I mean, it's amazing, isn't it? The stuff that comes up in the memory that we can be critical about. Or maybe, like me, sometimes you go to the gym, you know, as part of your exercise routine. And you know the drill. You get suited up and you go on the different machines. And I don't know about you, but I often have the feeling, what if somebody's watching? You know, what are they thinking? What if they realize I'm only using five pounds of weight and they're using... 50, you know, I always love it when I get to the machines and somebody's used less than I have. And, and what if my form is wrong? What if I'm not doing it right? And how come, you know, I don't wear spandex and, and maybe I should. And, and that, of course, leads us right into all the stuff about bodies because that's one of the places where we're really judgmental all the time. And we don't need to talk about that. So no matter where we go, you know, everywhere, retreats or outside, we have all kinds of judgment. The mind is endless. Ourselves, our world, our neighbors, our enemies. It's the mind, the judging mind is relentless and it's relentlessly busy. There's a wonderful line, I think it's the third Zen patriarch, who says, the burdensome practice of judging brings annoyance and weariness. And I just love that line because I have such a judging mind. And at the end of three days of retreat, you probably know just how burdensome this judging mind can be. I was well-trained. I have this memory of watching my mother cook when I was old enough to realize what was going on. So I'd probably been watching the same thing for a long time. And she would work away in the kitchen and she'd she'd talk to herself and she'd be mumbling along, you know, telling herself what to do. And then she'd make a mistake, and then she'd say, dumb broad. (laughs) And then I realized, I do the same thing. I sometimes do the same thing. I talk to myself, and when I make a mistake, I call myself names that I would never use with anyone else. And I'll bet I'm not the only person in the room who does that. I'll bet we all do it in one form or another. And so as we practice and we begin to pay attention, we begin to see just how harsh we often are with ourselves. And we also begin to see how enormously painful it is that we're really creating a situation where we live in constant chronic pain and the judging mind just continues to pick at it over and over and over again just making it worse. So as we begin to see this, it's one of those things, you know, it's really hard to see it. And it's actually really important. And one thing to say is, we don't get to choose these mind states that arise in us. They're conditioned. Anything that comes up in the mind is a conditioned event And it's conditioned by a huge variety of things, our culture, our families, our personal past history, everything. And you've probably noticed that. Can you prevent it? You know, I'm not going to have one more judgmental thought 
good luck. You know, you can't do it that way. It will arise. I'm not going to be anxious anymore. I'm done with that grief. I've done it, you know. It doesn't work that way. In the present moment, things come up. It's the reverberation of many past events. So, to go back to the story of myself and my husband, he kept going to Burning Man. And after a number of years, I knew the pre-Burning Man state of mind in my mind pretty well. A lot of annoyance and judgment and criticism and upset. And I didn't like it. You know, he suffered, I suffered. It wasn't very fun. So one day I went to see my good friend Ajahn Amaro, whom some of you know, who used to be the abbot of Abayagiri up in Ukiah. And I said, you know, I have this dreadful mind state about Burning Man. He had encouraged my husband to go to Burning Man in the first place. <laughs> so the good monk laughed and he reminded me something that I, of something that I knew. He said, you know, that used to be my spiritual path a long time ago. And here I am, you know, nothing too terrible happened to him. And then he pointed out this teaching that what was going on in my mind was a conditioned mind state, that I didn't have to accept it. I didn't have to buy into it. I just had to respond skillfully. So that was really an interesting thing to begin to take in. We all have a lot of conditioning for negative, critical mind states. We've all, unless you've been extraordinarily lucky, you've had grades ever since you were young. You know, I watch my grandchildren, they're still doing the gold star routine, you know, getting gold stars for this and that and the other. And we all have lived with a lot of criticism from our parents, from our teachers, and from the world around it. And so we develop this way of being in the mind and the heart where we are constantly comparing, constantly on guard, constantly evaluating how we are with regard to everyone else. I'm either better than, or I'm the same, or I'm worse. Those are your three options. And they are better than, the same, or the worse. And in Buddhist thinking, all of this is called conceit. It's not just the I'm better than place. It's all called conceit. And it's, it's something that is really deeply rooted in the mind. So please don't think you're going to get rid of it at this retreat because you won't. In fact, the teaching is that this one lasts until the last stages of enlightenment. So it's like, you know, there's some really advanced stages called the non-returner. It's sort of like, you know, Howie and I could be sitting here non-returners together and I could be saying I'm a better non-returner than he is (laughs) or maybe he's saying the same thing I don't know you know so they're very very conditioned they're often defensive you know and protective sometimes you know we learn to do them for good reason I learned to judge myself really quickly before my mother did because if I caught myself I could clean up my act before she got angry at me, right? And 
So we all have stories like that. And we get really identified with these states of judging and criticism. So we see on retreat how much it is a factor. Sometimes it's kind of discouraging. I remember years ago I was down at Yucca Valley sitting along retreat and I was walking back to where I was staying, which was some distance away across the desert, walking very, very slowly. And all of a sudden, I, this thought came in, and I thought, everything in my mind is judgment. Everything. I'm either judging me, or them, or I'm figuring out what to do so they won't judge me. And there wasn't much else. I was appalled. felt like, I don't know what it felt like. It just felt like I'd been stripped naked, and it was terrible. But, like I said earlier, this is very, very useful to begin to see that this is how the untrained mind is. And that the comparing mind really is a problem, you know? Because it's one of the places where we create a really strong sense of self because in a way it's all about me, you know? I'm better than you or you think you're, I'm afraid that you think you're better than I am. It's all about how well I do and how I can perform and how I can, can be okay. And so the endless judgment happens and then the endless activities to improve ourselves show that no one will judge us and we'll be more kindly judged by the others and maybe even a bit more kindly judged about ourselves. One of Jack's teachers once said, no self, no problem. So it's a good, it's another one of those good little sayings to stick in your pocket and to remember once in a while, oh, you know, all of this is partly because I have such a strong sense of self. So, how do we change this? What are we going to do with this mind and heart that is so difficult, so cranky, so critical, so hard? And what's important to say is that there are other kinds of conditioning that we can bring to the mind and the heart that creates the karma, creates the reverberation for wholesome mind states. Remember we talked about the four wise efforts the other night and that the effort to um, sustain and to encourage skillful mind states as well as the effort to dispel and discourage difficult ones. So this tonight we're really talking about sustaining and encouraging the, the skillful ones. We know that volitional actions have consequences and we know that this is the place where we can create some difference in our lives. So we can consider, if you will, the practice of what are known as the Brahma-viharas. So the Brahma-viharas, the word Brahma-vihara, means the divine abode. So these are the really divine places for your heart to live. Kindness, Compassion, 
sympathetic joy, and equanimity. Mostly at a retreat like this, we focus on kindness, on the practice of metta. But I'm actually going to talk about all of them tonight because they're all useful to know about and useful to have mm, some awareness of so that you can bring that energy into your own mind and heart. So I'm going to start, actually, with happiness and gladness. What's interesting is <coughs> happiness and gladness, excuse my frogginess, I'm much better, but I'm still a little froggy. They get much less press. Isn't that interesting? The Buddha said, I, I come to teach about the ending of suffering. Uh, he talks about wanting all beings to be happy. And do we ever talk in here about being happy? Hardly ever, you know? And Pearl James has had to go off and create this whole course on awakening joy just to remind Buddhists that we can be happy. But happiness is an excellent place to begin. It's actually considered to be one of the um, forerunners of concentration. And think about it for a minute. If you are cranky and grumpy and judgmental and critical and angry, are you going to get concentrated? No way. It doesn't happen. So happiness actually supports concentration. And so reflecting at the beginning of a sit or a day of what an opportunity it is to be here would be a really fabulous way to start your practice. And it will really support your practice. It's so unusual to be here having an opportunity to practice the Dharma. There's an image that we sometimes um, talk about that I'm quite fond of since I'm fond of sea turtles. So um, That in all of the oceans of the world, all of the oceans, so that's a lot of oceans, there is a blind sea turtle also floating around on all of those oceans somewhere. There is, I think of it as a life preserver since we don't have ox yokes so much in our culture, but same idea, you know, something round like that. Your chances of getting a human incarnation in this teaching are about as good as that sea turtle coming up right in the middle of that life preserver. So it's very rare in this teaching to have just a human life. It's even rarer, so I don't know what that would look like, to get to hear the Dharma and even rarer to get to practice. Very, very precious. So here we are, having this wonderful opportunity. And this gladness, this enjoyment of our own happiness and then the enjoyment of another person's happiness actually begins to counter that judgmental, comparing mind. And isn't it interesting? We don't very often take the time to enjoy our own happiness, do we? We are so often, you know, getting on to the next thing, or sometimes we're even critical of our happiness. You know, how can I be happy? I've got this or that to worry about and to think about. It's, it's not okay. 
in the practice of gladness or sympathetic joy, one of the phrases is, may I enjoy my happiness. May it last a long time. So you could try it. Go try it. Think a little bit just for a minute about, I hope you're happy that you're here tonight. Think about the brownies, if nothing else. And, and just take a moment and reflect on your happiness and then wish that it would last a long time. Now really let yourself have that. When we have gladness in our practice, it begins to push up against our judgment about our practice. And that contributes to deeper practice and deeper concentration. Gladness for the happiness of others actually contributes to not being so judgmental. You know, gladness for um, the, the person who got to walk in your walking path tonight, you know that person. Can we be curious and enjoy another person's happiness? So, one year, Russell went off to Burning Man, and I got really obsessed with the notion that he was going to come home with purple hair. And I was really upset with that story. I didn't like it. And I thought, I can never go to a supermarket with a man with purple hair. I just can't do it. And I know he's going to come home with purple hair. And then I thought, because I'm a good meditator, I thought, that's a story. You know, that's not true. But the story kept coming back. I was one of those. You know, he's got purple hair, and I'd get all upset again. And I'd think, no, 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 Mary Grace, it's a story. You know, chill. You don't know. And I went back and forth for the entire eight days or so he was gone. And finally it was the day for him to come home. And he always calls me when he gets someplace, you know, Donner Summit, someplace where he can, uh, in those days, find a pay phone because he didn't have a cell. And um, So the phone rang and I thought, okay, I'm going to find out right now. I'm done with this story. You know, I'm just going to ask him. He's going to say, no, 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 it's fine, and we'll be over. So I answer the phone. It's Russell. I'm happy to hear him. And then I say, by the way, what color is your hair? <laughs> and there was this long pause. And then he said, magenta, <laughs> but it will wash out. It didn't really wash out right away. It was pink for quite a while. So, you know, I could continue, if I wanted to, to be suspicious and judgmental of his experience. Or I could really, I saw that I could begin to work with training the mind. Could I enjoy his happiness? Could I be interested in his happiness? What makes him so happy? You know? And, and as I could gradually begin to do that, I began to have a little less judgment about what was happening. Can you do this here? You know, while we're in this retreat. You know, if you have judgments about other students, or you might have judgments about us, or maybe you have judgments about the managers, or the cooks, or how, we, how it is we do things here at Spirit Rock, you know, and and you can begin to work with, well, wonder... You know, be a little curious about, well, I wonder 
what that's like and can I be happy for their having the opportunity to live here or teach here or practice here, those kinds of things. We begin to condition the mind to go someplace else other than aversion and criticism. And as I've said when I've been teaching metta, and I think it's so important, these are all practices of intention. They're all seed planting practices. They're all practices in which we begin to try things on. So you may not be there yet. There's a wonderful teaching story about, it's a Zen koan, that one of the ones that Robert Aitken Roshi wrote. And in these koans, all the animals are teachers and students. And so one day, Mrs. Bear comes to see the teacher, who is the raven. And Mrs. Bear says, My children, they are just terrible. They're just driving me nuts. I, those cubs, they are into so much trouble and so much mischief. And I'm so angry and I don't have any kindness. I don't appreciate their happiness. And I just have no compassion for them. What should I do? And Raven says to Mrs. Bear, fake it. <laughs> and Mrs. Bear says, What? And, you know, that's not honest. And Raven said, it doesn't begin with honesty. Now that's a very interesting thing to chew on. I invite you to chew on. But what he, what's really being pointed at is, is you can begin to train the mind to try these things on even when that's not where your heart is yet. It's a doing, not a feeling. So a little bit about compassion. Compassion is another way to counter the judging and comparing mind. It's a practice of meeting our experience with acceptance and not being so defended. And my own sense of compassion is it's about the ability to be fully present with pain, our own or another's, without flinching, without pulling away. The word karuna, which is the word for compassion in Pali, actually means the trembling of the heart. Isn't that wonderful? The trembling of the heart. So it's that place when you're with someone who is so sad or so hurting, or you're so able to be with your own pain, that your heart just quivers because you really feel it. You take it right in. It's, it's that place of sympathy and feeling for all beings without exception. Utterly, it's a very, very powerful place. And it's so helpful, again, with that mind that races off to aversion and to criticism, because it, it really... Um, allows us to be with that which is painful in ourselves um, without judging it. You know, and of course, it's tricky, isn't it? Because um, sometimes when we judge ourselves and we're critical, then we judge ourselves for judging ourselves. So it gets a little exponential. Um, So again, with compassion, it's something that we 
that you can experiment with, that you can do. You know, as, as you're sitting there, even as pain arises in the body or in your heart, you know, or a little aversion, you can go, oh, huh, my knee again. And instead of, uh, 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 I wish my knee, and uh, I hate it, and what am I going to do? Practice, you know, can you just be there with the pain? It's a little like picking up a child who's skinned his knee and going, oh, you know, poor boo-boo, and pat him on his little back. I have grandsons, so I tend to think of hymns. And, and try to help make it better. Do we do that for ourselves? No. You know, we don't so often. You know, so maybe today you're grumpy. You know, you wake up and you're grumpy. Here you are at a retreat. How can you be grumpy? And pretty soon the judgmental mind is going, how can you be grumpy? You're a spirit rock. You're supposed to be at a retreat. Can you just hold that grumpiness with compassion? You know, be present with that. Be willing to sit with it and, and see what's it about, you know. Or maybe it's someone else. Maybe the student who's sitting next to you is coughing and sniffling and breathing. And, you know, that's pretty easy. Oh, they've got the cold, you know, and I'm right here. I'm only 18 inches away, and the critical mind gets going. And, and, and then it's a place, again, to practice compassion and certainly to take care of yourself, but also to really be willing to be with their pain and their difficulty. This compassion and the willingness to be with pain. You know, it doesn't mean that we don't occasionally work for things to be different. You know, we do. Uh, we work for change in the world and the ending of suffering. But if we're not willing to be with the pain in the first place, we often don't sense the depth of it and we don't know how to respond skillfully. Sometimes compassion is very gentle and spacious, really kind, seeing in all beings. One description I came across of the compassionate heart said, described it as seeing in all beings, including ourselves, the potential for Buddhahood. So, you know, the person who's got the cold next to you, you know, they possess Buddha nature and have the capacity to become a Buddha. Imagine that. But sometimes compassion is also strong and ferocious and a bit protective. It's, it's not, you see it in some of the Tibetan images of their wrathful deities, and some of them are deities of compassion. And, and this is a, the kind of compassion and the willingness to be with pain that also really wants to work for waking up and to get the obstructions out of the way. And sometimes I think when, when the judging mind is around, we need that kind of ferocious compassion because, you know, being compassionate when you're filled with judgment and anger just doesn't mean you lie down and let it run the show. It, the, the compassionate heart might say to the judgment, you know, you've got to get out of here. It's time, enough. And we're done with that. There's a certain kind of ferocity to compassion sometimes that takes care of us. Sometimes the compassionate heart challenges us, you know, and reminds us, you know, it's time, Mary Grace, to grow up, you know, you have to get over it. So it can take, the practice of compassion can take great strength. 
There's a piece I wanted to tell you. Later. So the Brahma Vihara that we've been talking about and that we know best is that of metta or loving kindness. I sometimes think of it as the umbrella Brahma Vihara. So it kind of covers all of them. And I want particularly to talk about one aspect of it that we haven't addressed much in the hall yet, and that's the aspect of forgiveness. Because forgiveness um, is part of loving-kindness practice, and it's also that place where we tend to get a little stuck. There's a wonderful quote from Henri Nouwen, who was a Catholic theologian, and he says, Forgiveness is the name of love practiced among people who love poorly. The hard truth is that all people love poorly. We need to forgive and be forgiven every day, every hour, increasingly. This is the great work of love among the fellowship of the weak that is the human family. So forgiveness is not about pretending that something didn't happen. So if that's been floating through your mind, please let it go. It's not a quick and easy practice. It can sometimes take years. And it's a practice that we do both for ourselves, to forgive ourselves and for others. And it's a practice about keeping the heart open no matter what. Jack used to like to say that forgiveness is giving up all hope of a happy past. And, you know, sometimes we think we don't want to forgive and or we can't forgive. But I've also been very fond of Nelson Mandela's quote in which he says, not to forgive is like drinking a glass of poison and waiting for your enemies to die. You know, it's really, really important for ourselves to be able to forgive. So forgiveness really involves keeping the heart open towards ourselves if we've done damage to ourselves or done damage to other people and to someone else, not splitting them off, keeping them at a distance um, and trying to, as I say, pretend that something hasn't happened. And it keeps the heart open no matter what we've done. Everyone in this room has made big mistakes somewhere in your lives. And sometimes, you know, sometimes um, we've hurt ourselves or we've hurt other people. And what's amazing is to really begin to see how it's possible to hold ourselves with forgiveness. I was talking with my daughter today. She said it would be all right to tell you the story that a couple of years ago she was taking care of a couple of dogs for an ex-boyfriend. And she was careless, and she left. She had taken them with her to do some, um, some things, and she left the car, left them in the car, and it was a cloudy day. And while she was gone, the sun came out. And she was gone for too long, and in the end, one of the dogs died from the heat. And she was grief-stricken. 
because she loved these dogs, even though she wasn't still with the boyfriend. She loved, these, she loved his dogs. And what was really wonderful were all of the people in her community who called her and told her about the things they had done that in some cases had caused difficulty and in some cases hadn't because they'd gotten away with it. But they'd still done the, the difficult things. And in that, that openness of heart, she began to feel enormous forgiveness in these people who did not close their hearts to her. And, you know, this is what creates, this is what allows the heart to open with kindness and forgiveness and compassion. So this is, you know, these practices of forgiveness, of training the mind to go towards um, goodwill and friendliness, they're all practices of intention and they're all practices that in the end lead towards freedom. You know, because this is where we step out of our past negative conditioning. You know, when we begin to realize that the difficult states, the judgment, the criticism, the anger, the aversion, when we when these arise in the mind and we really deeply understand, oh, this is a this is a conditioned mind state. What am I going to do that's skillful? And we begin to develop the practices, the practices of compassion and kindness and sympathetic joy. We begin to know how to respond in a way that's different and that's not caught in the repetitive cycle of suffering. So... As we sit, each day, you know, you've gone a little deeper. You may not know that, but you have. And each day the heart opens a little bit more. And each day there's not quite so much need to grab on to that strong place where we make I and me and mine the center of the universe. And as we deepen and as the heart opens and as we, with our mindfulness, develop the ability to be fully present with whatever comes, that's what then develops equanimity, which is the last of the Brahma-viharas. And equanimity is that place of balance, you know, that ability to be steadfast with whatever arises. I always love the image of surfing the waves of whatever arises. And this brings a certain kind of spaciousness and openness and steadfastness to the mind. In the end, the mind is concerned only with exploring suffering and coming to the end of suffering. It's not about judging or criticism or guilt. Sharon Salzberg said, when we see only suffering and the end of suffering, then we can feel compassion. Then we act in energetic and forceful ways without the corrosive effects of aversion. So that's a wonderful statement, you know, that when we really are willing to see suffering and 
in mindfulness practice, we see plenty of suffering, our own and ultimately that of others. And the heart opens. You know, it just, it just does as you do this practice. Your willingness, your willingness to do this practice is a compassionate act for yourself and for all beings. So to complete the Burning Man story, in the end, in an energetic and forceful way, last August, I faced my stories and my anxiety and my fear. I dyed my hair purple, and I went to Burning Man. And I can tell you, there's certainly a long version to this story, which we're not going to do here. But um, what I encountered there was difficult and delightful. It was definitely outside of my comfort zone, and it was utterly transformative. And it was an amazing experience of moving beyond the judging mind. So opening the heart is a very strong experience. It can take you to some pretty interesting places, even Burning Man. It's nature, it's not just, you know, it's not what I sometimes call wussy. It's, it's not angelic and sweet and comforting. Sometimes it requires great intention and great energy. Sometimes, as I said, your compassion or your kindness can have a kind of strength or even ferocity to it. And in order to counter that judging mind, we often need that kind of strength and ferocity. And it's really the strength and power of a skilled athlete or a dancer or a mountaineer. You know, it's a great goal to have both the wing of the practice that is the wing of compassion and kindness and the wing of wisdom. So here's one last poem. It's about the eyes of the Bodhisattva. And uh, it's by Michael Ventura. And he says, the, the eyes of the Bodhisattva are unlike any other eyes you've ever seen, except the eyes of children like your daughter. His eyes aren't filters, aren't sieves. They're not constantly deciding what to let in and what to keep out. They are absolutely open. They are not judging. They are letting everything in and everything out, and they are looking at you. Eyes that hold nothing back. This gives you such hope that you think you're going insane. So I would wish for all of you that you will find ways in all of these practices, in the practice of mindfulness, the practice of kindness and compassion and joy, the practice of equanimity, for your heart to become vast and spacious, a heart that can let everything in and let everything out 
and that can hold it uh, with equanimity and goodwill. So stay just as you are and let's sit and breathe together for a moment. So thank you very much for listening. Um, You've got about 40 minutes for a walking practice before the sitting at 9 o'clock. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.